Hello and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast. Hi guys, and today we are speaking to Dr. Dion Georgiou from the University of Chichester. How are you doing, Dion? Good, thank you, Jackson. Good to be here. I'm really, had, I'm really glad to have you on the podcast. It's been great working with you the past three years, and I'm really excited to talk to you about British footballers' biographies and their effect on British culture after the war. Mm-hmm. So this is an article that you've been working on for a, for a while now, isn't it? Yes, um, we won't. We won't. We've, we discussed just how long just before the podcast began. We won't. We won't discuss it. Yeah. We won't give the exact figures again. Um, let's just say it has been quite a while. Yes, that I've been uh, working on this topic. <laughs> so we're looking at Britain and its cultural structures in the post-war. So what what was happening to Britain structurally and institutionally during World War Two, and then how was it how was it changing coming out of the World War? So. Um, I would say kind of one of the main um, impacts of the of the Second World War was the kind of the level of the insertion of the British state into aspects of everyday life, into obviously into kind of controlling people's um, consumption of food um, and and of goods and um, and obviously in terms of its ability to kind of conscript people and direct them to particular areas of work, whether that would be serving in the armed forces or, or other industries. Um, and I think that is the war sets a precedent for the level of kind of state intervention which is expected and um, and, expe- and accepted in in people's everyday life. Not not uncontested by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and the kind of the extent to which um, kind of levels of in, of, in, of um, intervention were accepted during wartime. Um, the extent to which people were willing to tolerate those after the war had finished and the kind of moral rationale that had gone with them had had, had, had disappeared um, was um, was it was often a lot more a lot more complex which is which is um, an issue because actually in many ways um, Britain's economic position immediately after the second world war is if anything um, at times even more perilous than it had been during the second world war so this kind of rationing of, of foodstuffs that hadn't been on the ration and during the Second World War, for example, um, as the world kind of faced a, a global um, food shortage. And then one way people were trying to escape from the difficulties of everyday life was was through culture. And you mm-hmm. know, what, what shape was the British cultural industry after World War II? Um, so, um, so there'd been kind of various different... Um, Privations kind of placed upon the um, upon um, the various cultural industries during the um, during the during the war due to kind of um, shortages of various materials um, and um, so in terms of kind of um, and in, and in terms of kind of activity some work hotels for example um, BBC which had begun a um, a television broadcasting service um, during the 1930s stopped it. Um, for the duration of the war, um, some publishers found books harder, to, uh, found kind of materials for publishing books harder to come by. Um, likewise, for film companies, um, you know, the, the access to um, to kind of to actual film, uh, as in not not as in the films themselves, but you know, as in the as in the actual reels of film, um, became more difficult. So. In some ways, there's a kind of um, and things like newspapers became shorter. Um, and so 
there's a real um so there's kind of restraints that are constraints that are placed by the war um on on cultural industries and also in terms of kind of you know although cinema there are times when cinemas are 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 closed i think during the kind of early on in the war though they they generally stay open but for example with football matches there are kind of um quite strong limits placed on attendance so in many ways kind of access to culture is um again much more regulated um and there are kind of privations that the cultural industries um have to uh have to deal with um and but nonetheless they kind of come through that and they're kind of able to then um once living standards um start to rise after the war and kind of um and particularly as you get into the 1950s and um, expend an amount of kind of income that could be expended on, on life's luxury, so to speak, um, massively uh, kind of began to significantly increase for many people. And as a result of that, um, there was both uh, more money to be spent on leisure, but the expansion of the cultural industries and with that more competition between um, cultural industries. So things like football and cinema, which had um, been extremely um had been extremely successful suddenly find themselves being challenged for their audience by things like the uh, the spread of of uh, the increasing take up of television sets so it's it's a kind of it's a, a period of kind of constraint followed by this this period of growth in the in the um particularly during the 1950s i think is 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 really important in kind of thinking about how um culture is impacted by um broader economic circumstances, both during the war and kind of in the wake of it. And then obviously people have got used to that government intervention, but but did the government actually get involved in assisting with cultural growth or did they did they do anything to, to kind of promote it? Um, so so um, they they have you have things like, for example, the entertainments tax, whereby they're literally relying on the um, on uh, people's kind of spending on leisure as a direct um, contribution to the to the exchequer. One of the things that they're seen as having kind of um, of, of doing a favour to the cultural industries is when they actually finally remove this. It's worth recognising this isn't actually something that was introduced during the second world was something that dates back to the first world war and has kind of remained in place ever since. Um, they do things, for example, in um, set up various vehicles for supporting, um, for providing finance um, for British um, filmmakers um, and, and to kind of encourage the making of films in um, in Britain. This is something which has kind of been revived and continued and changed over various, um, over kind of over, over the subsequent decades. Um, this kind of attempt to to grow a viable British cinema, um, and there's also been things that have done along that so uh, alongside that to try and create an authentically British national cinema. So, going right back to the late 1920s, there's there've been quotas placed on um, on the minimum amount of British films that could be shown by a cinema, so that a, a certain portion of the films that they showed um, that would be distributed and that would be and that would be actually um, showed in cinemas had to be um, British. So there's a number of steps that governments do take to try and intervene in promoting both the well-being of the cultural industries themselves and also to try and their, their kind of specific Britishness. Um, 
which is um, which is kind of a real uh, a feature of this period. And at this point, you see the the changing nature of the consumer content and the rise of it or creation of ITV. You know how different or how much were things changing? You know how different was ITV from BBC, and how different was this new content to the past content? I think ITV is a really interesting case in that it's set up, or the, the independent television authorities set up by um, by a piece of government legislation. Um, it's funded by advertising, but there's extremely um, stringent limits on levels of product placement, um, clear and an emphasis placed on keeping, um, you know, content and advertising as kind of you know as programming and advertising as, as clearly separate things um there's you know there's still kind of limitations um kind of degree of censorship in terms of what they can and can't uh, show and so there's it's even though it's a um even though it's commercial um rate a tv station it's it's um financed by advert by revenue from advertising rather than from um, a license fee in the in the same way that um, BBC television is. Um, crucially, it has the kind of same public service ethos um, at its heart. You know that the people who are kind of running um, the ITA are very much kind of establishment figures with experiences of working um, of um, either you know careers in British politics or careers running other state. Um, run um, cultural organisations. So it's, even though you have the kind of expansion of, uh, this is, I think this is a classic case whereby you do have a case whereby the, in the context of the 1950s, you do have um, an expansion of cultural choice. Um, but it takes place under very specific um, circumstances and whereby the kind of the level of it's not simply a case that you have ITV and all of a sudden you have this drastic radicalization of what is shown. Nonetheless, the extra degree of choice, um, the kind of introduction of a new format, the, um, the different imperatives that, um, that kind of advertising um, does impose, mean that you do start to get a kind of a, a much more of a, a variation. Um, and one of the things that kind of the, the independent television authority um, encourages by its very structure um, is regionally focused programming because it's um, there's not one ITV as there is today but rather there are a, a range of different um, regional broadcasters producing programs which are, which are shown um, which people watch locally um, and these regional broadcasters have um, franchises um, from the ITA um, and nonetheless, some of the programming they produce proves popular enough that other regional broadcasters start showing it as well. But a really good example of this is how um, is um, Granada as the kind of broadcaster for the um, for the for the north um, and later the northwest, um, and it uh, provides an opportunity for um, kind of working class people um, to work in making and, and acting in. Um, in, in the kind of programming it makes. And of course, a really good example of this is Coronation Street. Um, and this actually is something that then impacts back on the BBC, which um, reorganises um, in the late 1960s with a view to 
producing much more kind of regionally focused um, content. So it's it's not as straightforward as kind of, you know, here comes commercial television and here come a lot of commercial imperatives. But nonetheless, it it does change the kind of, it, it's an example of how um, economic changes and, um, and kind of political changes, um, in, in this case, the, the, the move from a Labour government that was opposed to commercial television to a Conservative one that was supportive of it, um, create circumstances whereby culture changes um but it's important to recognize the culture has its own autonomy that is it's it's not simply the case that you kind of that you have a as soon as you get a conservative government you therefore have a commercial tv broadcast reporting you therefore have much more kind of economically right-wing material being produced on 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 television it's it's a much more kind of complex process it's more about the spaces um that these um that kind of open up um and so often the kind of the way that economic and political change impacts upon cultural change can sometimes be paradoxical can be quite surprising um but nonetheless it does certainly i think open up a space for a less deferential culture um in the way that it produces an opportunity for um particularly as we come into the 1960s for kind of more anti-establishmentarian um voices um to, to to kind of to and and thinkers um and and creatives um to become involved in filmmaking um in making television programming and and so on and then obviously your article is not just about uh culture it's also oh, no, it's... The, the structures of culture it's also about football and to, mm-hmm. to understand where the football was at that point, uh, you have to kind of look at how football was organised because whilst our mm-hmm. many of our listeners and our viewers would understand how football is organised now, it wasn't organised the same way. Yeah, it's a it's it's a much more what I would say a kind of closed um, political economy of, of of football in in this in the sense of the kind of the relationship between um, between the kind of the those um, institutions which had authority within the organisation of football, so the Football Association and the Football League um, for a start, but also the kind of clubs themselves. Um, and they have, they kind of operate far, I would say a kind of far more controlling approach, including even to kind of opportunities for commercialisation, there's a degree of scepticism, um, but also over kind of the opportunities for the players too. Um, and so it, it's an era whereby um, the differences between um, kind of between clubs at the top at the, in the kind of in the top division um, and further down in say in 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 what was then Division Four, um, what what we would now uh, the kind of equivalent now is obviously League Two, um, that the kind of level of division between them that we've seen grow since the advent of the premiership in the um, in the early 1990s obviously at that time isn't there you have the football league runs the the entirety um entirety of the league so it there's a greater degree of egalitarianism within it but at the same time there's no automatic promotion into division four um you know you have to be um elected by league members to to join the division and they have to in doing so make the decision usually to um to expel 
an existing member. Um, and obviously a system like that is quite prone to not admitting new football clubs. So again, this is something that only happens in the 1980s, whereby you finally get the establishment of, you know, of the football conference and the establishment of a kind of genuine pyramid of football, whereby um, there's kind of a way into the league system, um, a, a clear way into the league system, which is designed to be meritocratic. Um, so I think that's a really good example of the of the kind of of the nature of of football about about the way the kind of constraints. Um, we might also think about kind of restrictions that are placed on broadcasting, um, the kind of the very uh, so football like other sports have not been had, had seen things like the BBC as a potential threat to its audience. That people, if they started listening to matches on the radio or later watching matches on television would not uh, would not come along to games that was the that was the concern so it engages it engages in the kind of forms in kind of in broad engagement in with the with the world of broadcasting relatively slowly and cautiously the same with the same with the world of gambling um and it's it it it's only until the, the um in the 1950s that it kind of strikes up a relationship with the with the pools companies i think it's the, the 1950s and it's so it, it's this is a period of a very kind of gradual opening up. But what the, one of the ways that I think particularly interests me in terms of the way we think about the closed political economy of football is the restrictions that are placed on uh, on players earning power in the form of maximum wage and their ability to move clubs with the um, retain and transfer system, um, whereby you could, if your contract ran out, you couldn't just up sticks and move to a different club. Um, you were required to um to to stay with the club on kind of the terms it offered you or if they were willing to transfer you um and so there's kind of there's very strong restrictions on both players earning power and then their freedom of movement um the maximum wage is abolished um after the players take strike action in the early 1960s i'm sure that's something we'll come back to um the maximum the 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 way the retaining transfer system kind of suffers its first really severe blow um, with the case of um, George Eastham, a, a, an England international who um, ended up having a severe dispute with his um, with his club Newcastle, who promptly refused to sell him, um, and basically um, he was. Um, he had to temporarily leave the game and, and work in another field um, until um, Newcastle finally agreed to sell him to Arsenal. Um, and then he sues, nonetheless, with the PFA's backing, he sues um, Newcastle United. And you have the first time... This is interesting because actually the kind of the, the um, retaining transfer system was always potentially um, in breach of the kind of wider employment law and, and, and wider and wider laws. Um, but it had never been effectively challenged in court before. Um, there had been attempts to make it and it had gone kind of disastrously wrong in the in the kind of in the pre-First World War periods. And so for a long time, this system, which you know was, was incredibly restrictive um, in ways that might have been in breach of employment law, isn't effectively challenged within the court of law um, until the 1960s. Um, and it's from there on in, it's kind of modified and modified. It's 
the the big change obviously that we that we see is not until the um 1990s with the introduction of the bosman ruling and then it becomes a norm that once your contract runs out um you can move to a uh, to a different club um you know that th there's there's nothing to stop you from signing for a, for a, for another club once your contract has run out um unless you're although if you're if, with younger players they have to be compensated so that's that's a massive um a massive change but you know, going back to the kind of the, the 1950s and going back to this period before you start to first see these kind of real liberalizations of of um, constraints on players um, start to um, start to be lifted from the 1960s. It's a much more controlled, um, forcibly egalitarian, I would say, um, in terms of its kind of, at least the attempts extent to which it tries to maintain a level playing field between clubs by making sure that the financial power of individual football clubs can't be directly turned into signing all the best players because there are restrictions on how much they can pay them. There are restrictions on the ease with which players can move. Um, and so it's about trying to maintain the... Football League is a kind of competitive entity and maintaining the well-being of the clubs within it, um, not necessarily those who are just outside of it, um, and certainly not necessarily the players who the um, who are, after all, the the the, pe the people who are bringing who that you know that fans are turning up to watch who are who are effectively the revenue earners for the game, um, but they're um, they're subject subjected to kind of constraints. On their on their ability to maximise their um, their kind of their their value in terms of their in terms of their their, their playing career by these restrictions that are imposed by the um, by the footballing authorities. So what we what we're seeing is a a largely dominant FA and league system that's incredibly restrictive, and it doesn't seem like these these clubs are being operated like a normal business at the time. No, um, there's a, yeah, they, so we often think about businesses in terms of, you know, what business is there for to make profits and to, and to, and to kind of maximise those profits. But I think also we need to consider the extent to which businesses as organisation um, are also kind of committed to their own continued existence um, and, and to the kind of, and to, um, and to fulfilling other objectives as well um and because the people who are running the clubs are often don't necessarily see them as ways of making huge amounts of money for themselves um and often clubs remain in you know there's often kind of long-standing family connections and ownership of clubs um that the kind of that profit motive is um that, that profit motive isn't necessarily so clearly directly an influence on the way that um, clubs behave. And so often they, they treat what we might see as kind of money-making opportunities of the sort that clubs now um, will absolutely leap upon. Um, at that point, they don't, they don't necessarily see them as, as, as good things for the game. And it, it's a reminder that, Pete, that obviously that um, the people who run businesses are people and they, uh, uh, and they, their own kind of political and moral um, beliefs um, 
and their own kind of attitudes towards the the, the sector they work in. Um, I think there's a tendency sometimes that we assume that um, that people you know people run a cultural industry. They know what the audience want, and they and um, and you know and it's and it's all dictated by the consumer. Um, and actually, I think we we need to. That's a really kind of simplistic way of thinking about it. And actually, the extent to which um, people who run businesses interpret what the consumer wants um, through their own worldview um, and in, in keeping with their own principles and their own interests. And so that explains much of the way that kind of football clubs are, are, are run at this time and the way that the kind of the extent to which the level of commercialization of the game is kind of kept at bay by those people running the clubs, those people running the football association for whom professionalism was it was in itself a, a compromise that they had made. And then of, of also the Football League as well, which is an, an organisation representing the entirety of football clubs um, in the country, but rather a, a, a small select elite of them. Um, even, and, and even if you're kind of way down in, in, in Division 4, you're still part of that broader um, elite of, of football clubs. And, and this seems particularly poignant at the time or in recent history where you know club owners aren't or were trying to do things what they saw as the for the good of the game and we've seen that recently uh with the european super league um but at this point we're seeing a a growing international internationalization of Mm -hmm. the game so where does british or english football fit within that growing internationalism yeah, I should I should stress actually we're talking about British football. Um, I'm talking very much about the kind of the the English league. Um, I'm not familiar enough by my own uh, admission with the kind of rules um, around um, around the Scottish league. There are a lot of kind of parallels in the way that it's run, in the way that football is set up in the in the different um, in the four home nations, um, including this kind of. Football Association, Football League split, um, but in so in um, in terms of um, in terms of the impact that um, that has had uh, and the kind of internationalisation of the game. So one of the things that happens in the immediate wake of the of the Second World War, shortly after the Second World War, is that the um, English, Scottish, Welsh and Northern Irish um, football associations that had left FIFA in the late 1920s rejoin and the 1950 World Cup, you see them qualifying to participate for the um, for the first time. You also have because of the kind of economic recoveries taking place in um, in uh, in European countries who um, in many ways experienced a far greater kind of level of destruction. Um, than Britain did, but they, their economies do um, under both um, under both kind of Marshall Plan directed capitalism or um, or kind of Soviet influenced communism. Their economies do recover, um, and it creates a context whereby you can have a decent standard of football being played by people who are, to all intents and purposes, professionals. Whether they're you know whether whether they're openly professional. Um, as is in the case of of Western Europe, or they have, um, and this is, it would be very complex to try and go and explain the kind of structures of um, of uh, of kind of of, of socialist sports um, at this time. But basically, whereby clubs are owned by state or by various different state organs and 
those players are in theory um, paid for jobs that they do for that state organ, and they just happen to incidentally play football. The reality is that they're 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 um, they're not really um, you know they're not really working for the directly as for kind of in factories or or in the in the army, but they're they're playing football for their living. But either way. With either of those systems, they're both earning enough, and football's becoming a viable enough and lucrative enough um, kind of industry that you can start to have the que- that, that whereby the question of the and the possibility of having um, regular football matches um, between different clubs from from different countries um, is something that becomes feasible as a kind of as a regularized thing so it's there there are moves towards this going right back to the interwar period um and even before that but certainly during the 1930s you start to see kind of fairly regularized competitions being played on sort of smaller scales or kind of recurring friendly matches between um between clubs that have kind of good relationships with each other from different countries um and also overseas tours at the end of seasons but it's only in the 1950s that you fought, that you start getting um, initially under the kind of um, under the urgings of the um, French football magazine L'Equipe to set up um, an a, an international club competition between the various different um, between the various different um, leading teams of um, of Europe who had previously kind of been instead meeting in friendly matches and there would be debates over who's the best club team in the world and famous matches between, um, for example, Wolves and Honved. Um, and it's, it's um, L'Equipe who kind of see this as, 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 as something that could be that, you know, the, who, who advocate the setting up of a, of a kind of, of a European um, cup competition for the first time. Um, and UEFA, which has actually been set up really to kind of, to effectively to, to, um, with a, with a view to kind of running, uh, among other things, with a view to running a kind of a, what was then the European nation, what would become the European Nations Cup, what we've now just seen the European Championships. Um, we've been set up really with kind of, with, the, with a view to setting up an organisation, um, with a view to setting up a cup competition for national sides within Europe, um, as kind of, a, as an a part of FIFA. Um, but once this initiative takes place to set up a, a a um, a degree of uh, a kind of a, a football club competition. It's something that UEFA kind of feels the need to take over, uh, you know, to, to take um, control over, um, and kind of accepts it and supports it. Um, subsequently, then introduces the Cup Winners Cup. Meanwhile, you have the Fairs Cup being introduced, which isn't under, um, which isn't run by UEFA. Um, it's it's kind of linked to. Um, broader international cultural festivals taking place within the, within different cities, um, and it's only in the 1970s whereby that's taken over by um, by UEFA and becomes the um, the UEFA Cup. Um, so it's something which kind of again the impetus for it isn't necessarily a isn't actually necessarily from the kind of football um, footballs organisers themselves on an international level, but is rather something that is kind of driven. Um, by um, by kind of actors beyond beyond the kind of beyond um, beyond the organisation football in the in the in the form of things like the, the football press. Okay. 
Well, and it's it's quite interesting to to watch that develop and to see what's going on within that time. Uh, but you know, with this growing internationalization of football, is there is Britain sitting behind tactically? Are they are they as good as Europe? Um, I think certainly at the in the late 1940s, you have a a really good um, England team who go and um, who kind of go about playing friendlies and really highlighting their kind of their um, their ability. But it's once you start getting into the 1950s and you start having um, international competitions at the kind of the level of shortcoming of um, of. Um, British football relative to um, the calibre being played in South America and, the, and, and in continental Europe starts to become apparent whereby, you know, um, these teams, you know, they're, they're not doing as well in the World Cup. But even pretty early on in that, you have the kind of real confirmation of just how far British football is falling behind the, um, behind the, um, the, the other leading lights of the of the of the world game, um, with the arrival of the kind of the, the superb um, wonder team of Hungary um, in the early 1950s, who um, beat England 6-3 at Wembley in 53, and then 7-1 still England's record defeat um, in 1954. Um, they also um, comfortably beat Scotland, I think, at Hamden as well. Um, to kind of to reinforce the point. Um, and so there's a real kind of the the kind of the performance, particularly of England, but also of Scotland at um, at World Cups in the 1950s starts to really kind of shatter this um, myth of British superiority sport. Uh, Wales and Northern Ireland um, don't uh, actually do quite well in the 58 World Cup. And so um, and kind of uh, do um, do. British football's reputation a great deal more good, um, but nonetheless, it's the case. And there's kind of a there's a slow acceptance that actually that um, initially there's a kind of tendency to almost sort of, given the stylistic differences between the British game and um, and the game that's being played on the continent, um, to kind of to to kind of to make excuses to say, oh well, they play a different sort of game to us. I wouldn't say it's necessarily better. Well, they say, oh yeah, well, kind of collectively they're very capable, but individually the British footballer is 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 has got more ability. Or they say, you know, no, none of these players can play compared to the kind of the great um, footballers of the interwar period. Um, so all sorts of kind of excuses are made, but eventually there's kind of it's fairly clear um, by the um, by the by the start of the 1960s, whereby you have got regular international and club competition and they're not being won by British sides. They're being won by um, Spanish teams or by Portuguese teams um, and World Cups are being won by the likes of Brazil and Uruguay um, and not by um, not by uh, British teams. Um, and then there's a it's, it's obviously there's a kind of change of fortunes in the um, in the mid to late 1960s whereby the Winter World Cup in 66. Celtic wins the um, the European Cup in '67, followed by Manchester United in '68. Already in the early 1960s, I think you have um, I forget exactly when. I think it might be '62 or '63. 
uh, whereby you have the first victory in a um, in um, European competition, as in a club actually winning a cup, um, when Spurs win, UEFA, win the Cup Winners' Cup, rather. Um, and so you kind of get towards a period, and then you come into the 1970s and into the late 1970s, where, um, you know, whereby British clubs really come much more into their, their own in terms of their competitiveness, and you have... Um, you also have Rangers winning the Cup Winners' Cup. You have multiple different um, English sides winning the winning the um, winning the European Cup, um, and so there's a kind of shift in fortunes. Although it's actually at a time a period of time whereby um, British football team, British national teams are not doing are not doing well. You know, England fails to qualify for the '74 and '78 World Cups. Um, Scotland qualifies but goes out in the um, in the first round, and so it, it's there's a kind of the recognition sinks in I would say a lot earlier in a kind of narrative of superiority to a narrative of well there's reasons why we're not beating them to a kind of narrative of why are we just not as good and it's kind of this idea of the continental footballer and the English footballer is kind of two different types. The idea that the English footballer, the British footballer, is the superior, um, very quickly starts to kind of shift towards a recognition that actually that players like Pele, for example, are, you know, a well, he's not continental; he's from Brazil. But the um, but this kind of idea that these players are smarter and cleverer and more and more able, maybe more cunning. Um, than the than the British footballer becomes something that uh, that becomes embedded, and it's it's something that is persists. I would say <laughs> towards the present day, um, you know, Simon Cooper in his nineteen ninety three book Football Against the Enemy writes about this kind of this categorization of this kind of, of differences between the, the the continental footballer and the British footballer, and these kind of these these various stereotypes. Um, and talking about how Gaza at that point in time. Um, overturned some of these in, in his in his in his style of play, but the extent to which that kind of idea that the the British footballer is a separate type from the European one, and actually that's not a and and that's not a uh, uh, an a an attractive comparison um, starts to kind of set, settle into um, British football discourse after the Second World War. Once you start to get these kind of regularised competitions and. Yeah, British teams are not, um, with some periods of success, do have some periods of success, success, but at times they're kind of the extent to which they are behind the the, the, the teams, uh, the world's best foot, uh, football teams, both at club and international level, um, starts to starts to become fairly clear. And, and you know, building on that, like 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 you just said, we are seeing that that stereotype kind of eroding away, with mainly the exception of Burnley. Uh, we kind of we are still seeing that erosion of what a British footballer is, but then yeah. at this point we see stars being born with the cultural expansion of, of football and mm-hmm. the expansion of football and players being part like household names, uh, mm-hmm. and they and, and they start writing autobiographies. So yeah. when did these well, first? They... Oh. Uh, no, no, no. I was going to say when well, they, they start writing um, autobiographies, obviously it's a, it's got, but you. you um, the the first kind of 
um, footballer's autobiography is um, start to appear kind of around about the end of the um, of the Second World War, um, where often they're kind of players who were already big names um, before the um, before the um, before the Second World War. So in many cases, it's players who already kind of established their their stardom um, earlier, and who are kind of who, with the expansion of the publishing industry, um, see an opportunity to kind of to to kind of to cash in on their stardom, or rather. It's often, um, I mean, a, a really interesting case and one that we know a fair bit about because um, he's written about it is Brian Glanville. And Brian Glanville, um, having been a childhood Arsenal fan, um, recognised the opportunities there to potentially be made, um, uh, for, for money to be made. And he, 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 speak, he um, speaks to both the publisher and also to the, um, to the um, now veteran Arsenal player, Cliff Bastin, and offers to ghostwrite his autobiography. Um, and so you start to see this, um, this kind of relationship develop whereby um, a financial opportunity arises for both football journalists and for footballers to co-produce um, these, um, these autobiographies. And this is facilitated by the, um, by kind of, by the, re-expansion of the publishing industry after the Second World War and by the extent to which it's starting to um, recognise the existence of potential new audiences, um, one of which is, you know, working class um, adults, also children, um, who might be interested in reading about the, um, about the lives of these, of these um, players. And so you start to see a real kind of they start to become much more common um, as you get into the late 1940s and then they, they remain at a pretty high level throughout the 1950s. And then in the 1960s with the kind of various successes of these, um, of British teams um, in both club and, 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 um, and the international game, um, you start to see a real um, kind of flooding of the market with, um, with these kind of autobiographies. Um, so it, it's something that really, you know, that footballers' autobiographies aren't a genre that exists um, in Britain prior to the Second World War. It's something that very, very quickly becomes um, a, a growth area um, in the um, in the 40s and 50s. And, and it's something that we have to recognise through this prism whereby the extent to which footballers' opportunities to make money through actually just playing football is constrained by the by the maximum wage, um, and so other opportunities for making revenue um, through things like endorsements, participating in advertising, but also through, for example, the royalties that come with um, with having a book published in your name, um, become much more um, become a, become a kind of an attractive option, um, and so. This is how this kind of process comes into um, starts to kind of starts to uh, to come into um, effect, and you start getting more and more footballers' autobiographies with various levels of input from the from the players, um, and the extent to which you know what is what is the 
what is the footballer and what is the the writer um, is often a difficult one to kind of separate. I think you kind of have to see them as a kind of as a a co-authorial voice, really, um, in the extent to which the, even if the words are mostly the choice of the kind of, of the ghostwriter, nonetheless, it's the footballer's life, it's the footballer's story, it's their permission that needs to be given in order to tell it. Um, and so it's it's a kind of it's a a co-narrativization really of their of their of their sporting careers. And then, um, and, the, and yeah, sorry. I was, and then I was just about to say these these autobiographies are they are they all giving independent kind of narratives or are they all enforcing a certain stereotype of which people have about the footballers? Yeah, there's um so um one of the people who's written about the um about um, footballers autobiographies is Joyce Woolridge and and she talks about there being kind of these um it's kind of about the sort of the the way that the 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 British football autobiography develops as a genre and she kind of periodizes it with um and I broadly agree with this that there's kind of a period whereby the the first footballers stories that come out are typified by people like Stanley Matthews and these are kind of ideal life stories um and they're, they're kind of the idea that this is actually um that these people are the embodiment of a meritocratic um Britain but also a people who um who offer a healthy example for other people to learn from um, in their kind of approach to their to their careers. And, and so it's the kind of the ideal sporting life kind of um, narrative. And then from the 1950s, you start to see more and more kind of autobiographies that we might call um, kind of bad boy of sports um, stories. So people like... Um, Len Shackleton, who had a kind of rep representation reputation as a um, as a kind of sporting as a maverick on the on the field, kind of writes his autobiography. Um, Trevor Ford, who'd been um, suspended for taking uh, under the count under the counter payments, and had generally been um, an incredibly controversial figure on the field as well as a kind of uh, rough and tumble centre forward. He publishes his autobiography. And so you kind of have a period now whereby it's this kind of this sort of it's important to recognize that you still get these kind of that these ideal sporting life narratives continue to be published but they now coexist with whereby a footballer doesn't have to have lived an exemplary life uh, or, or have a kind of exemplary life story to tell um they can also be kind of telling a watson all story of the game um and then a third narrative which starts to appear is kind of in the 1970s you get much more kind of confessional autobiographies talking about the kind of real difficult times in their life um and uh jimmy greaves for example um his autobiography published in the um i think in the very early 1980s it kind of details it pretty extensively um his um his kind of his decline into alcoholism um, in, 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 in pretty um, kind of fairly, you know, I, I remember reading it as a teenager and, um, and, you know, kind of reading some of the stories and the extent to which he, the kind of the lengths he would go to get to, to, to have a drink um, in um, really, really strikingly um, kind of no holds barred sort of approach, which is very, very different to the kind of narrative that had been told um, 
in the um, in the kind of autobiographies of the likes of Stanley Matthews in the late 1940s. So yes, yeah, so you do have a kind of a you do have these three broad types, and you do have this real kind of shift, and it and it correlates right with the the, the shifting reputation of the of the of the of the football and who are the kind of dominant types. And once you get into the 1970s, it's kind of very much the sort of the the mavericks, the kind of people like um, Rodney Marshes and, and and Frank Worthington's, you know, pe people who've got a a reputation for kind of both hard living off the field as well as kind of ostentatious displays of um, of kind of footballing skill on the pitch. Um, and so this kind of these kind of um, shifts in um, in footballers' autobiographies and their and their kind of and their and their and kind of and the, the sort of generic structures that they follow um, are very much kind of connected to these um, broader shifts in kind of footballers' um, reputations, um, which in itself also has a lot to do with um, with the kind of those changes that taken place in the early nineteen sixties with the with the kind of abolition of the of the um, of the maximum wage, um, and it's interesting. You, you you kind of clearly see this in the narratives of the um, of the footballers' autobiographies. Once you come into the mid to late nineteen sixties, they often talk about the kind of the perks that the game has has given them, um, and the and the kind of the the kind of the, the financial benefits that had uh, that had gone with it, and the extent to which they're able to build a good life for for them and their families. Um, and that's very much, and they recognise that you know that this wouldn't necessarily have been possible had it not been for the abolition of the maximum wage. Um, and so these kind of these players who tend to be um, generally amongst the kind of elite players, international players, the best players for their clubs, who tend to be um, top division clubs, and so they're, they're the people who benefit the most from the kind of abolition of the maximum wage. And so they're able to tell this story of, of greater prosperity, um, and obviously that combined with um, cultural changes in the 1960s and, and 70s. Um, all of these kind of combined to make um, to make possible a, a very different narrative of the footballer's life, which, you know, revolves around kind of um, a degree of hedonism off the pitch often and um, and, um, and and, you know, and talking about um, kind of their sexual exploits, their kind of um, their their love of drinking or gambling, and and the kind of and these these stories become part of their um, become part of the kind of the the sort of um, standard footballing um, autobiography, and and that and that's down to these kind of shifts that are taking place both within the game, um, within other cultural industries like publishing, um, and then more broadly within Britain itself, and then. So a lot of them are exposing how their life is and how their life has changed. But do any of these autobiographies kind of expose or highlight any of the wrongs in the in the British game compared to the foreign game? And and then do these lead to any changes within the game at home? It's hard, it's hard to see whether they lead to any changes, but they are often provide a a commentary on the kind of on the shortcomings of the um, British game. Again, it's difficult to know whether these are the narratives of footballers themselves um, or whether this is kind of, whether these are sports journalists who have their own agendas that they're, that they're writing. Um, 
What's striking, though, is that when they're talking about the, particularly in the 40s and 50s, um, when you start to get this narrative about this is what I do, this is what my career entails, this is, and this is what I'm paid, I should be paid more. There shouldn't be these ceilings on what I can earn. Um, and so it's hard to see how those those details about you know my about my my spending power and my, my earning power and you know it's this parallels what the um the kind of arguments that have been put out by the by the professional footballers association um and that also the you know and and, and details in fairly extensively these kind of players contractual arrangements um in a way that makes it makes it fairly obvious that this is definitely to a large degree, the players' input into these narratives is is visible, and they they are often very critical, particularly of the kind of of the of the um, the limits that are that are placed. Um, in some cases, they discuss moves abroad, like the case of um, John Charles, the Wales and um, and Leeds centre back slash centre forward, um, who um, moves to Juventus, um, and his autobiography. Um, in many ways, as a justification of his move to Juventus, and talks about the kind of the, the, the financial constraints that had existed on his spending power um, as a player in England, and how that changed when he went moved over to Italy, um, a, where um, Italian football wasn't necessarily wealthier than um, English football, but rather the wealth that was concentrated at the top of the game, and the lack of kind of similar restrictions on. Um, on, on payments to players um, meant that you could make a great deal more um, as a kind of as a star player in Italy than you could in um, in England. So there's a lot of there is a lot of kind of discussion of the state of the game and what needs to be done to kind of to put um, English or British football back up where it belongs. So there's still this kind of narrative of kind of of, of you know. The, the whole idea that we gave the, ga the game to the world and, and you know, and we, we played it first and we played it best and we need to, how do we get back to our kind of, to our, back where we belong kind of um, narrative. Um, but there's also these, these come alongside, you know, really fairly extensive criticism about the way that the game is run um, and about the way that it's, um, and the way that it's kind of wealth is, is shared out and the, and the amount that um, kind of top players are able to get um, out of the game. And then there's, so they're criticising the game, but it seems there's a little, there was very little criticism of international situations, such as the Cold War, when these players are going over to the East. So that they're, they're encountering issues within their own game and saying, you know, I'm not paid enough. But when it comes to these cultural issues, are they getting involved? Or those political issues, are they getting involved in them? Yeah, they, they tend to be. I think particularly in the... Um, where, whereby there's a lot more kind of intrigue to trips overseas because they're not quite as regularised. Um, players' accounts of... Um, Players' accounts of their experiences um, going overseas are a lot more of a kind of big deal, especially when they go, especially in the in the 1950s, whereby um, Cold War relations are still fairly tense, um, whereby kind of there hasn't been a sort of normalization of relations. Um, and so what's going on in the Eastern Bloc is still remains, you know, something of a mystery. So 
you do get these kind of narratives about you know my trip to my my strange trip to moscow and kind of accounts of it often what they tend to talk about is sometimes about the kind of the amazingness of the um of the of the footballing facilities that have been that have existing in eastern bloc countries um and the, the quality of, of the teams but it's often used kind of set against the um kind of narratives of the poorer quality of life in um in eastern europe the kind of the political situation um there the lack of freedom there's often a lot of discussion about the kind of um about poor quality um, living accommodation, um, about negative experiences of kind of flying in, whereby they, um, whereby their kind of um, aircraft had come into contact with um, with communist countries um, fighter planes that kind of um, if they come out of their um, air corridor. So it's the, the kind of narrative of the trip to Eastern Europe is often one which is kind of surrounded with intrigue and often replicates quite a lot of negative stereotypes about um, life in communist countries and the kind of political situation, the economic situation, even as they might praise the teams that they encounter there um, and the quality of, 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 of facilities they have. So you have kind of so often sitting side by side, you have these sorts of negative stereotypes and, and kind of and, and typical negative narratives about life in, um, in the Eastern Bloc on the one hand, but also these narratives about um, about communist advancement and about the kind of about the um, you know at this is a time of, of of Sputnik and whereby the Soviets seem to have the the lead in the in the space race and whereby there's a, there's a perception at this point in time which is rapidly um, which is rapidly kind of disproved but it's a, a perception that actually the Soviets are, are leading the world and kind of offer a vision of what the future is going to be like. Um, and so you have these kind of narratives of sporting advancement sitting alongside narratives of broader political backwardness. Um, it's interesting because some people do feel the need when they're writing about the game to kind of present uh, an ambassadorial um, stance and sort of say, oh, these politics have nothing to do with me. It's um, Billy Wright's autobiography is kind of, it's sort of status as England captain as a kind of gentleman of the game means that um, his autobiography is very diplomatic about um, life in, in, in those countries. Others are a lot more scathing. Um, Tom Finney, for example, is, is very kind of, is very negative. And again, we might question, you know, to what extent um, is this kind of advocacy of, of kind of capitalist um, economic systems and the kind of understanding of life it facilitates, to what extent is this, um, to what extent is this coming from the football writers themselves who are kind of regurgitating tropes from um, from kind of from journalism, from other genres, certainly a lot of it. But at the same time, a lot of these players are actually people who are involved in initiatives to maximise their own income. Everything, everything that they're kind of doing off the pitch um, is actually, you know, a, a lot of the things they're doing, kind of opening their own shops, um, they, they do have to be quite entrepreneurial and they're also involved in a trade union movement that is nonetheless a trade union movement which is about making more money for relatively well-paid workers um, to kind of maintain their differential in terms of income from, you know, from the ordinary factory worker. So there's reasons to actually to kind of suspect that whilst the kind of um, 
whilst there's a this kind of this dislike of the politicization of the game that they see um, communist countries as, as undertaking and of the, um, of the and the kind of and these narr narratives of the kind of standard of living um, uh, many of which kind of regurgitate um, stereotypes from other um, from fiction and, and from from film and from the media about um, about kind of life in, in in Eastern Bloc countries. Nonetheless, it's it's I think I, I I find it tempting to be, to think that actually this particularly kind of the extent to which they don't just um, I would say they 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 don't um, these aren't just kind of narratives that kind of fit the Britain of the forties and fifties. Um, a country who's kind of whose kind of broader economic model at that time is is is, is social democratic, even under even under conservative governments. Whereby um, this is a country whereby um, actually, which is becoming more equal, whereby um, trade unions play a a large part in life, but also that is still quite establishmentarian. Whereby whereby there's still um, whereby there's, there's still kind of, um, it's becoming more equal, but still one where class difference, differences are marked and where, you know, and, and which is still quite paternalistic in a lot of ways. Um, whereas footballers' autobiographies, I would describe as much more proto-Thatcherite in many ways, that they're kind of, their narratives about um, meritocracy and demanding that they be paid uh, and kind of defend, and then once they do start getting paid the amount of money they, they believe they should be, they start defending it. Um, and this feeds into their narratives about um, about kind of Eastern Bloc life, which is which which basically um, are you know very pro capitalist in their arguments. Um, and so it's on the one hand, this is kind of coming out of a the Cold War divide as it exists between Britain and um, and the Eastern Bloc. But at the same time, it's almost it also shows the extent to which the the instability of the kind of British social and cultural and economic order of the time, the extent to which it was contingent, um, I think. Um, and so it's interesting how this, I think, I think footballers' autobiographies are a real, really good example of the kind of paradoxes of British culture, um, that they, that the kind of um, impact of greater prosperity, um, which is, um, achieved under a, uh, you know, as, as part of kind of broader um, global economic conditions, but which is kind of, which is distributed relatively evenly um, um, by, his, by historical comparisons um, under, you know, as part of, a, as I said, as part of a kind of political economy that we could broadly describe as relatively social democratic um, between kind of the period between 45 and 79. Um, and it creates opportunities for people from working class backgrounds to kind of have their, to tell their stories and to kind of and to and to contribute um, to um, to culture. But paradoxically, that also creates a space for people to kind of tell narratives which kick against this establishment, kick against the establishment, um, kick against also kind of the um, the norms of Britain during this period. Um, in ways which ultimately, I would argue, serve to undermine it. They serve to kind of, you know, it's. I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to um, attribute the rise of Margaret Thatcher to Jimmy Hill, 
but I think there's, there's, there's clearly a kind of a paving of the way in many of these narratives. Um, it kind of, I think it creates a space whereby these narratives can kind of multiply and, 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 and circulate, which are critical of the, um, of the norms of the, of the kind of social and economic norms of the day. No, the social and economic norms, which actually arguably create the space in which footballers' voices can be heard, you know, whereby footballers' autobiographies have become a product that that people want to buy. So I think I think it's quite it's slightly paradoxical in that sense, and it kind of again I think it highlights the extent to which we do have to think about the kind of autonomy of the cultural field, um, and the extent to which it that kind of political and social and economic changes that take place beyond the kind of the realm of cultural production will shape the way in which culture is produced, but they won't necessarily shape its, um, it won't directly shape its outcomes necessarily. It won't, it won't determine the, the way that those, the kind of, it won't determine the nature of the culture that is produced, but the culture that is produced can produce new narratives that challenge the particular economic and political and social structures um, and, and thus can drive kind of changes in them. So it's a, it's a, I think it's an interesting relationship. I think it's one that doesn't necessarily work out in always in the way that you would, you would think it is. So I, I think that's one of the things I find most fascinating about these footballers autobiographies is in many ways, they're kind of, they're both a product of the, um, of the post-war era, but they're also a harbinger of its, the dismantlement of that kind of dominant of the you know the of the of the world that you know that that uh of the kind of world of of post-war britain and that kind of that particular what we might call the post-war settlement and, and everything that kind of underpinned it um you know footballers autobiographies are both a product of that era but they're also kicking against it in ways that you know in ways that we can kind of foresee some of the narratives that would become politically dominant during the 1970s and certainly into the 1980s and beyond. And it's, it's particularly interesting that today we're perhaps seeing a return of that cycle with, with players like Marcus Rashford putting out new books and new autobiographies. But now a final fun question for you, Dion. Now, mm-hmm. I know you are a massive Arsenal fan, like myself. Yes. Um, who are your three favourite players, past or present? <laughs> Like Burkamp Um I think that's a fairly uh, Can't go wrong, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It kind of speaks to um, my uh, particular generation. So Ian Wright was the first footballer I kind of idolised growing up in the nineteen nineties. Um, uh, he basically was the um, the entire uh, basically at a time when Arsenal weren't particularly good. I think it's fair to say the fact that we still had a striker who was capable of getting um, thirty plus goals a season. Um, you know, and he was such an, uh, as he is as a pundit now, he was such an engaging personality on the pitch as well. Um, and, you know, the, the, the equally capable of scoring tap-ins or banging them in from, from 30 yards and taking the goalkeeper by surprise. And then obviously I, I was fortunate enough to be a teenager at the point where Arsenal's strike force consisted of Burkamp and Henri and, yeah, two utterly incredible players who it was an, an, an absolute um, privilege to kind of, for the sort of, the, at the point in time where it really does matter to you just how well your football team is doing. Yeah. I, I, I was I, I was pretty well blessed in, in, in just how good they were. 
um, at that at that point in time. It's easier to deal with Arsenal being not quite so good when you're when you're when you're once you're into your thirties and you have other things to 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 worry about. Um, but kind of when you're in your late teens, the football really is the be all and end all. Um, it I was quite lucky that the <laughs> that the be all and end all was pretty good as it as it as it was at the time. You are incredibly lucky coming from someone else that's seen as win a, a league title. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's it's um, yeah, it's we've 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 had better uh, periods. Although we've had we've had worse ones as well during my own, <laughs> during my own lifetime that I can also um, attest to. So, and if our listeners would like to interact with any of the topics that we have spoke about today, what would you recommend that they go away and look at or read? Um. So, um, people whose work I would um, recommend looking at, so on kind of on, on footballers' um, autobiographies, particularly um, Joyce Waldridge, on um, football more broadly um, during the um, and kind of history of British football more generally. Um, Matthew Taylor, at, uh, Professor Matthew Taylor at De Montfort University, um, his work um, on. Um, obviously, we've kind of we've ranged quite um, widely. I wonder whether it would be better actually, because I, I do want to kind of to you know to to genuinely give a shout out to every person whose yeah. kind of work I've paraphrased. Um, but there's been a lot, so I think I think what I might do is is send you a kind of a reading list if that would be all right to kind of to, to put up with the with the podcast, the kind of yeah. to, to sort of recommendations for for people to do um, reading if they're interested about stuff like. But certainly, Joyce Waldridge's work. Um, Matt, Taylor, Matt Taylor's work on 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 post-war British football. Um, who else? People like um, uh, Jim Tomlinson's work on um, and um, and also Jim Phillips' work on kind of like on the political economy of Britain during this period and the and the uh, and so that yeah, there's there's quite a few people whose work I would certainly recommend kind of relating to the different things that we've talked about. Um, so, um, so yeah, those are, are, are some names to, to get started with, but I'll, I'll send you a kind of a, um, not a lengthy, but a short reading list of, of people who are kind of interested in various topics that we've, that we've touched upon today, their, their work to, um, to, 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 uh, to have a read of. And I make sure they are in the description for all our listeners below, just to make sure that they can get a copy for themselves. And then finally, if our listeners want to keep up to date with you online, where can they find you? Um, on Twitter, usually moaning, um, <laughs> uh, but generally, uh, yeah, uh, at Dr. Dion Georgiou, um, good thing about having a relatively unusual Greek name is that, um, is that it's, it's much easier to kind of get your, the Twitter handles and emails that you want. Um, so yeah, um, I guess, uh, Twitter would be the first, um, point of contact. So yeah, um, I'm at, at, uh, DR Dion Georgiou. Um, at um, is my is my Twitter handle, um, and yeah, that's the best place to um, to kind of to uh, to to find me. I think um, if you're kind of uh, interested in um, in uh, my work, um, and if you want to hear plenty of moaning about Arsenal, it's also a good place to to um, to to look. Uh, Hopefully, so, this season's um, a bit more yes. praise. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm relatively, I'm, I'm, I'm relatively, I, I, I'm sanguine. I'm not. I, I, I'd say I was optimistic, but I'm, I'm, I'm sanguine. I'm, I've, I, I'm, I, I, 
treat um, fortune and uh, and and misfortune with Arsenal um, uh, with kind of with the same uh, uh, kind of worldview now. The best descriptor um, is an Arsenal fan. That's <laughs> yes, I think I think yeah. Although I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not angry enough anymore. I think when it comes to to uh, I don't I don't rage over over a teenager being sent on loan who should be at the first team. I, I, I find that slightly strange. But anyway. Oh, thank you very much, Dion. Thank you very much for coming on the History of Jackson podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely um, uh, chatting to you um, about uh, about this topic, one that I know that we're both uh, strongly interested in. We've talked about um, before tree term time, but it's been nice to have a real kind of um, thorough chat about it uh, today. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Thank you.